Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Cliff Zlotnick or the Z-Man and here with me in Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania is our cyber jockey, Zach Zlotnick. Good day and good giggity to you all. Our co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, and his students are participating remotely from a mold awareness training course at the University of West Florida's Division of Life and Health Sciences. Joe, can you hear us? Hey, Joe, can you hear us all right? I can hear you now. I was muted there for a moment. Good day. Hey, perfect, man, perfect. Okay. We've got a little bit of a lag here, but it seems to be working pretty well. Okay. Uh, you can email me at cliffzlotnick at unsmoked.com. You can contact Radio Joe Hughes by emailing to him at joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Today's segments include the Microband Trivia Quiz, an update from the Donnybrook League Commissioner and Industry Activist Peter Consigli, an interview with Ed Cross, the Restoration Attorney, Roundup with our Technical Director, Dr. Dieter Wiles, today's guests, and maybe some call-in guests as well. We could not do the show without our sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions. You can find them on the web at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at J-O-N-D-O-N, that's johndon.com. And last but not least, Microband Systems, the microbial management company, on the web at microbandsystems.com. The easiest way to contact our show is to call in live by dialing 724-444-7444. Follow the prompt to enter the show ID which is 1547. Then follow the next prompt to go directly to the show by simply dialing 1 and the pound sign. You can also access the show from your computer by going to www.iaqradio.com 
and clicking go to the show link at the top of the page. Or you can go to the TalkShoe website at www.talkshoe.com and follow directions to go to the show. We appreciate your suggestions. We'll answer your questions and consider your requests if you email them to us at info at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Microband trivia question for Friday, September 21st, 2007. Zach, the envelope, please. Today's microband trivia question comes from the legal profession. What was the subject of the U.S. Supreme Court's opinion on the case of Daubert versus Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals, Inc.? The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Pete, Donnybrook Commissioner, do we have you on the line? How's it going, Cliff? It's going good, Pete. It's going real good. Can you give us an update on RIA and its activities, please? Yes, I will be happy to do that. Uh, give you a little, uh, give the listeners a little bit of an overview of the RIA Fall Conference Series, which will be in Garden Grove, California. It's not too far from uh, Anaheim, Disneyland. Um, first time that I can remember in the association's history that we've actually went to Orange County. I think it's a great location. Uh, the Fall Series uh, starts off on. Um, uh, October 23rd, which is a Tuesday, with the uh, NERC division um, doing a special business program on uh, looking at hard surface cleaning as a diversification. And uh, then uh, on Wednesday, uh, the 24th, um, they uh, will follow that up with the uh, with actual uh, plant tour to local plant with the uh, live demonstrations on uh, hard surface cleaning. The environmental uh, division will uh, open up their uh, second annual conference on the Wednesday. Yeah, they also have a mold refresher course uh, that's um, scheduled uh, the day before on Tuesday. Um, we also have uh, um, the, the IMAC group that will uh, be holding uh, their first annual conference for their IMAC members uh, um, in conjunction with, uh, with the event on the 23rd. The exhibit's open on the evening of the 24th to the Wednesday, and uh, that way it kind of accommodates all the different divisional people that will be coming. And... Um, and then uh, on the 25th and 26th, those, uh, that's the uh, fourth annual restoration conference, um, which uh, the highlight of which will be the two Donnie Brooks we'll talk about in a second. And then on Saturday, there's, a, there's some optional workshops, a marketing workshop, which was repeated from last year, uh, was uh, very highly received, and a brand-new uh, risk assessment and project management workshop, which, uh, which is going to be facilitated by uh, the restoration lawyer today, one of your guests, right. and a good friend of both of ours. Um, the, uh, the other major highlight of the event is uh, American Technologies, a significant uh, restoration and asbestos abatement company in Southern California with nine offices is going to be having a, a plant tour on the Friday evening of that week, October 26th. Um, and so uh, we're, we're real happy about that. Okay, that's kind of a general overview of the program, uh, Cliff. Okay, if you can tell us a little bit about the Donnie Brooks, Pete. 
All right. Well, as uh, as listeners, uh, regular listeners of the program, though, have been on here a few times uh, as the commission. Uh, we've had some of the Donny Brook uh, uh, participants uh, on past shows. Um, the uh, on Thursday, the the twenty fifth, the, uh, the the first day of the restoration conference, we're going to be bringing the uh, uh, the uh, the drying debate, Donny Brook, to a head. This will be the third go around, and um, uh, there'll be four members on each team. Uh, so, uh, that, that's, we're looking at to really kind of be, uh, pretty exciting. What we've done to, to build up to that is we have, uh, in the morning, we have a series of special interest presentations, uh, from a wide variety of, uh, the, you know, different industry participants on related topics that kind of tie in, kind of set the stage for the Donnybrook. So, um, it's kind of like a who's who of the industry. It's a, it's, it's a pretty, uh, pretty significant list. We've also, uh, assembled a special expert panel. And uh, a couple of past uh, guests on your show, I think your listeners are familiar with, uh, Joe Steebrook and uh, Mac Pierce will uh, be giving two mini keynote presentations um, uh, to, as kind of a setup for, uh, for, the, uh, for the Donnybrook proceedings, which will take place in the afternoon. Uh, we also have a press box there, and we've gotten uh, commitments from uh, some of the editors from uh, the um, <laughs> industry magazines to, to cover the event, along with the uh, Obviously, somebody from your show and also from uh, Industry Bulletin Board Restoration Forum. We're looking forward to that participation, Pete. I think you know, bringing the media in and covering the event is a pretty exciting idea. Joe, let's, let's see if we can see what Joe's doing down in Florida. Hello, Cliff. Hey, Joe, how are you? Can you I tell must be Florida Panhandle is all I can figure. I don't know how I got that nickname, but... No problem. T tell us a little bit about what you're doing down there for your course, Joe. We're doing a mold awareness seminar, and we've got about 18 people in the room here all looking quite confused at the moment, wondering what the heck is going on here, because there's a little time lag between me and uh, when it comes out on the speaker, but it's going real well. And uh, we've had a great time. We've got a panel up in front. We've discussed some mold awareness issues. And we are now just listening in and hoping to hear some stuff from Pete and Ed Cross. Yeah, no problem. Uh, we're waiting for Ed to call in. Uh, have any legal questions come up from your students yet? No, there's been more interest in the um, regulation that's been passed in Florida. They now will be requiring at some point in time licensing mm -hmm. for mold remediators and assessors. And at this point in time, we're still waiting to find out from the uh, bureau here that's in charge of writing the regulation itself exactly what will be required. I see. Okay. All right. We're still waiting for Ed to call in. I haven't, I haven't heard from him. So what we can do is um, just. Is Dr. Wow on the line there? I don't know. Let's see yeah, he is. Yeah, let's see if Theater's there. Hey, Cliff. Yes. Hang on. Uh, commissioner. Yeah. Okay. Hang on a sec. Hmm? Where's Dieter? Oh, Dieter's right there. Hey, Dieter. I keep guess for Hello? Dieter. Well, well, well. A little sweaty after playing tennis. A little Beethoven for you. Yeah, how are you? That sounds good. <laughs> that sounds good. Another one in the minor in the minor key. Anyway. Uh, no, I'm uh, I'm quite uh, well up here in Pittsburgh, back in Pittsburgh. Joe and I work together Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. For that better, Sunday also. We work all the time. 
And um, I don't know anything about his seminar over there right now, but I made it back to Pittsburgh quite nicely, and uh, I played some tennis this morning, and I haven't read any scientific journals or any of that. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, today, you know, we're probably going to be talking primarily about legal issues. We'll have Ed Cross on, and uh, you know, we're waiting for him to call in. He is kind of juggling his schedule. He's actually on some sort of telephone testimony, which I think is an interesting concept that they yes. seem to have in California, but I'm not sure that they have it anywhere else. Have you ever heard of that theater? Oh, yes. I have been uh, participating in, in, in those situations many, many times, and um, it works. It saves money. Uh, lawyers sometimes like it, sometimes don't like it. They still like to uh, show a real-life person in front of an audience called the jury, mm-hmm. and... Um, but uh, it, it does work, yes. i tell you one of the subjects that I would like to really talk about this morning, and it's really where the IAQ industry is, is, is kind of going next. You know, oftentimes people think that the mold rush is drying up and that they are uh, trying to figure out what's going to be the next indoor air quality problem that we're going to have to deal with. Uh, you know, any, any comment on that, Dieter? Do you have any idea what it's going to be? Am, am I still on? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, in fact, I, I, I just said that uh, in the beginning of the week uh, to my students uh, down there, University of West Florida, um, I think if we start to look at our ventilation systems, be it uh, residential, be it commercial, it doesn't matter. I think I think we have screwed up for a long time on that because it was an afterthought. And I think we ought to concentrate on designing it and engineering it and making it work. We have all the technology. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, microcirc, everybody knows about that. And I think it can be done, but we have to talk to the people uh, who are involved with that. We have to teach them and have to and make them, uh, probably the best is to make them aware of it. I think that is the main uh, thing that we have uh, uh, to, to do to make uh, things work and make it look right. Good. Uh, Zach's just let me know that I think we've got Ed on the line. Uh, let's be sure we've got him on there, Zach. Ed, are you there? Hello. Perfect. Just hang on a second. Hey, Ed, hang on a second. Uh, Our guest this morning is is Edward H. Cross, the restoration lawyer. The restoration lawyer, Ed Cross, is president of the law offices of Edward Cross and Associates in Palm Desert, California. He represents restoration contractors and environmental consultants in construction defect and restoration disputes. Before practicing law, Ed worked in the construction industry for more than five years. He's handled hundreds of cases involving disputes over contractor pricing, allegations of mold-related illnesses, and contractual disputes. He's actually gotten his hands wet and dirty, earning certifications in water damage restoration from the IICRC and a certification as an indoor air quality professional from the AEE. He prefers work authorizations, waivers, disclaimers, and warranties for restores and provides 
provides a broad-based legal service and risk management consultation to building owners and businesses involved in various facets of the restoration construction industry. He was a contributor at IICRC's S500 and S520 standards and the IICRC's AMRT, the Applied Microbial Remediation Technician Examination. He's published over 35 articles for the cleaning and restoration industry and has given over 55 invited presentations on legal issues affecting the restoration industry. We have music for him, Zach. Yes, we do. Okay. I was walking outside at City Hall I slipped and had a terrible fall Negligence on the part of a don't care who I felt so hard I was seeing stars, dollar signs Men from Mars and the man who helped me up Said I ought to sue He was a lawyer He was all out of breath Okay, welcome, Ed Sorry for any technical difficulties you had Thank you, Cliff you had getting into the show. Well, first of all, tell us what's new. We need to catch up. What's new with the restoration lawyer? Well, I want to say hi to my beautiful wife, Denise. Yesterday was our 10th wedding anniversary. How about that? Good. Did you send her flowers? Woohoo! She put up with me for a whole decade. Good. <laughs> well, are you a defense guy or a plaintiff's guy, or do you kind of walk the fence and work both sides? Well... I uh, have been working on a lot of contracts lately for commercial cat losses, and my emphasis has been more on litigation prevention as opposed to defense. Um, My clients have found that they can save large amounts of money by preventing problems rather than trying to fix them afterwards, and this we can accomplish through early attention to problems, things like good change orders, better contracts, more thorough documentation of decisions that are made during the process. And although probably half of my work is uh, transactional when things do go to court, uh, it's not that I'm strictly plaintiff or defense. My clients are restorers and environmental consultants, and whatever side they're on, that's the side that I'm on. And sometimes they're plaintiffs and sometimes they're defendants. Okay, cool. What I'd like to do is maybe just catch up on the view of the industry from, you know, behind a legal desk. What's going on out there in the world of mold litigation? I think things have settled down quite a bit in the last couple of years. The hysteria that we had, 1999, 2000, 2001, isn't there as much. There are fewer mold lawsuits, fewer lawyers who are taking uh, mold cases. The recoveries in these cases are smaller. I look back on the cases that I had 10 years ago when I was representing homeowners, and I'd be lucky to get 20 cents on the dollar today for what I got on those cases. Right now, uh, judges are excluding a lot of medical and scientific evidence that are being offered in these cases on grounds of junk science, basically. And as a result of all of that, the insurance industry is playing much tougher on these cases. They're not seeing the size of settlement offers that they used to, and that's even more uh, discouraging to the lawyers who are taking these cases. And one reason why I think things have settled down a bit, obviously, is the awareness has increased, and people are being more proactive, and that's 
something that we're trying to accomplish all along. My personal editorial comment is that I think mold is still overblown both in the legal community and in the remediation industry. Um, it, it seems to be standard practice for many companies to contain mold or uh, use some expensive procedures even for tiny amounts of mold. And I understand why they do that, but I think it's unfortunate and it's driving the cost up. Yeah, I think that there is a double standard in the industry. When I talk to most remediators, uh, they would do it differently if there was if it was in their own home or even working for their own mother than they would do it actually in dealing with a uh, you know, an insurance claim, just a much, much higher level of, of standard of care. And, you know, we're going to, that's one of the things we're going to be talk about, talking about in a few minutes. Any recent court results that would have an impact on our industry that the listeners might be, might like to hear about? Yeah, um, there are continuing to be uh, some cases that go to trial on mold cases, not a lot of them. Uh, a number of them are resulting in defense verdicts, and in many of those, the judges are excluding the uh, portions of the uh, medical or scientific evidence. Uh, late last year, there was a Maryland jury that awarded some tenants $375,000 against their landlord, which is the housing authority of Baltimore City, basically claiming uninhabitability and a failure to maintain. The plaintiffs in that case uh, alleged $3 million in punitive damages but received zero punitive damages. And the lawyer in that case uh, attributed the zero punitive damages award to the fact that the judge excluded some of the evidence that he wanted to uh, present. The biggest case uh, in the last few years is still Gorman versus Crenshaw Lumber, which is the California case from 2005. It was a construction defect case against 17 different companies, including a bunch of subcontractors and material suppliers, regarding a high-end custom home in Manhattan Beach, California, that had some mold in it. And there was a young boy there, five years old, who was unable to talk and was still in diapers. And there were issues in that case about uh, the neurotoxicity of mold. And the plaintiff's lawyer spent a tremendous amount of money on that case and worked it up properly. And in that case, the judge actually allowed evidence that mold can cause brain injuries. And then he refused to allow the defendants to uh, put some of their expert witnesses on the stand because they were not timely identified by the defense attorney. The defense attorney got caught backdating his expert witness list, was recused from the case, and reported to the state bar. They got five weeks into the trial, and it was going really well for the plaintiffs. And when the judge ruled that those experts couldn't testify, the case settled for $22.6 million, which, as far as I know, is the largest mold settlement for a single family. It was not awarded by the court, correct? That was an, a settlement arrived between the parties. Those were voluntary payments, which include $10 million from Crenshaw Lumber. Now, in my experience of many hundreds of these cases, uh, I can't think of any where I've actually seen somebody recover money for illnesses 
related to what we traditionally consider uh, lumberyard mold. And um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but if you if you look at, I believe it's Ceratocystis ophiostoma, um, you'd be hard-pressed to find a physician who will say there are many health effects from that. Well, speaking of uh, health effects. Yeah, of- that was a voluntary settlement. Speaking of health effects, you know, the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine published a paper on the adverse health effects of mold. Um, do you know anything about that paper and how it's been used? Yeah, that was a, a big uh, boost to the insurance industry and to the defense bar when that came out because although it admitted that allergies and asthma can be caused or exacerbated by mold, it took a pretty line on the toxic effects, saying that there essentially wasn't much of a scientific basis for the idea that toxic illnesses were being caused due to indoor mold exposure cases. And so the defense attorneys and defense experts were using that article all over the place as the gospel. And they did a lot of damage to a lot of plaintiff's cases with that until it came out that some of the parties uh, involved in that case were expert witnesses who do a lot of defense work, and the reputation of that paper kind of went down, and the defense attorneys I know uh, stopped using the paper as evidence in their cases. They didn't feel the uh, reputation of it was so good. The president of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine said that it was an evidence-based statement which was the position of the group, the college, as opposed to any particular individual. So that's a controversial paper, but I think that uh, a lot of the statements in it are right on the money. Okay. Um, what about new issues such as trademarks, advertising claims, you know, patents, any comments on anything like that, or perhaps the legal issues surrounding the use of heat for mold remediation? Yes, with these new technologies coming out, anybody who's in the industry, whether they're a contractor or a consultant, needs to be careful about adopting the marketing claims of the companies that are pushing these technologies. And to some extent, they have a responsibility to do their own due diligence. And just because you receive a brochure from a company saying that this is a scientific, scientifically proven process to remediate mold or achieve some other result, uh, that's not enough in and of itself to put it in your own marketing materials or use it to sell jobs. Um, You need to do uh, some research, some due diligence to make sure that the claims being made are valid and that there's some good basis for them. And if somebody comes along with something that it seems magical and mind-blowing, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. There's a lot of uh, legal activity going on right now with regard to the use of heat for mold remediation and a debate as to whether or not heat is a substitute for the physical removal of building materials. From my personal vantage point watching this stuff, I think that uh, the people on the other side are winning because I think they have uh, a stronger position on the point that it doesn't seem to be 
much in the way of scientific evidence out there that the use of heat in a building will actually denature mold allergens or remove the beta-glucan and uh, eliminate the irritant effect. But the jury's still out. These cases are still pending. And a few months from now, we'll probably know the outcome. You know, in regards to advertising claims, uh, as an attorney, surely you see a lot of advertising materials. You probably uh, surf on a lot of websites from the industry and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, common terminology that we find on websites, on literature, on business cards is, you know, mold remediation expert, mold remediation professional. Do people that use these terms need to be able to prove it? And, you know, what constitutes expertise? Well, it's a lot of different things. Um, if somebody's making those types of claims and they get sued in a workmanship type of case or a standard of care claim and they don't have certifications and they don't have years of experience in the business and they're not uh, familiar with the standards and the leading publications that are out there, they can get beat up pretty well in those cases. And if they're uh, too aggressive about it and the case is really egregious, they could theoretically be subject to punitive damages, which are damages to punish somebody over and above the amount of actual harm. The basis for that would be a fraud claim. That they're basically misrepresenting uh, their skills or abilities or capabilities to the public. And if a customer relies on that to their detriment and they were intentionally deceived, that's fraud. You know, we've mentioned this word standard of care, and I'm wondering if you can define it for the listeners and explain why this term is important. Standard of care is the type of practices of reasonably prudent contractors, um, practices that are common among prudent contractors who are recognized in the industry as being qualified and competent. It's not necessarily the state of the art. In some instances, the state of the art, the best available technology, may be a common practice. Uh, used among those who are recognized in the industry as qualified and competent. The most important uh, point in all of this is that if somebody falls below the standard of care and there's some damage caused to a customer or to an occupant, then the person who fell below that standard of care is liable for the tort of negligence, which is what most of these lawsuits are about. And Another uh, point people should keep in mind is once somebody undertakes to perform some type of task, they need to perform that task up to the standard of care of people who work in that industry. And sometimes people will venture off into things that aren't really in their expertise. Maybe they're just trying to do a customer favor and they're acting in good faith. Well, that doesn't matter. If you pull over at the side of the road to a traffic accident and you try to render medical aid to somebody, well, you need to do that at the level of care of a physician. If you undertake to act as a physician, you need to perform according to that standard of care. Hmm. Um, we, you volunteered your time to help, in, uh, help the IICRC develop and 
write these industry standards for mold remediation, for water restoration. What effect do these standards have on the industry? Well, from my personal vantage point, I was expecting to see them popping up, in, in my cases, all over the place, and I haven't. They are a central point of discussion in a lot of cases that are going on across the country, but for whatever reason, I just don't see it very much. Um, I'm, I'm sometimes asked if the ISCRC standards actually raise the bar, and as a practical matter, that may be true, but theoretically, um, a statement of a standard of care should just be a report on what's going out there in the industry. And so somebody writes, this is the standard of care. Well, those are practices that are common among those who are qualified. It's not some new different thing where the whole industry needs to rise up to what some particular organization has written in a book. You know, one of the interesting things in IICRC standards is an emphasis on paperwork and documentation. Is this a good thing, a bad thing, a double-edged sword? What's your opinion on that? Overall, I think it's a good thing. I think uh, this industry as a whole uh, sometimes has problems with paperwork and documentation. Most of the companies uh, that I've seen get in trouble, have gotten in trouble because they haven't documented some peculiar circumstance. They didn't get a change order when they needed one. And they didn't create a file that a third party could come and look at years after the fact with no knowledge about the background of the project. But just sit down with a file and be able to recreate all the key events. Whether you're an environmental consultant or a restorer, you need to have a file that a third party could look at and be able to understand what happened, when it happened, why it happened, what the price was, and how the price was calculated. You know, speaking of price, a lot of times there's going to be a document that's going to lay all this stuff out. Sometimes people call it a work authorization. Sometimes people call it a contract. Is there any movement or are there any advantages to using a work authorization as opposed to using a contract or vice versa? Well, restorers consider their work authorizations to be payment contracts, and most of them have language in there indicating that the customer is supposed to pay the bill if nobody else does. The problem is that most consumers put the phrase work authorization as simply being an authorization to do work. We're going to let this company in, they're going to do some things in my house, and many, many customers assume that the company is just going to accept whatever the insurance company is going to pay and that the customer doesn't have any personal responsibility. That's why I think it's really bad to have a document titled work authorization. That is an arcane, outdated, stale name. Um, What I advocate is titles like service contract or home improvement agreement or words to that effect. So it has the word contract or agreement right in the title. 
the only time I think authorization is appropriate is when you're dealing with a third party like a tenant. And you can have a work authorization with, with a tenant that uh, advises them to take care of their valuables and not to turn off equipment and to call the company if uh, there's a problem or issue that arises. And maybe even have um, some releases or disclaimers in there. You know, Kent, as a restoration contractor doing mold remediation or structural drawing, where I'm not making any repairs or improvements to the property, am I eligible in the state of California and or in any other states that you may know to file a mechanics lien? Uh, yes, in my opinion, uh, that does constitute an improvement. Now, there's some debate over what constitutes an improvement. Some consider it to be actual uh, construction. But California, for example, is much more broad in their definition. They consider any restoration, repair, or remodel of a home to be home improvement. And anything that's home improvement has to be done according to a very long list of specific rules and procedural requirements, including a bunch of paragraphs of language that need to be included verbatim in their contracts. California's probably the most stringent on all this. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about this business relationship between contractor, insurance company, and, and property owner. What's really the current state of affairs, you know, in this relationship? Are there any new things happening? I go to a lot of trade shows, and contractors are just complaining. And what they're complaining about is uh, not getting paid the full amount of, for which they've invoiced. Can you comment on this? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's my imagination, but the problem seems to be getting worse. Last week, I spoke at the Dry East Symposium, and contractor after contractor after contractor came up to me and said, the insurance companies are slashing our bills to pieces. They're making arbitrary cuts. They're, they're paying it, and they kind of put these contractors between a rock and a hard place. If they cut a $10,000 bill down to $7,000, is that really enough to file a lawsuit over? Do they want to go to small claims? Do they want adjusters out there telling uh, potential future customers, hey, you got to watch out for this company. Um, we may not pay off all their bill because we think their billing is unreasonable. And if we don't pay all their bill, then they're going to sue you for it. And if they have a, a project where there's twenty or $30,000 due, it's really too big for a small claim. But um, can they really afford to go to trial on a case like that? It's tough. You spend so much money on the lawsuits. Even if you have an attorney's fees clause, um, it's difficult, and it needs to be uh, handled with care. So what I recommend is that the contractors handle it on a step-by-step -step basis, where they look at the, the customer's willingness to pay, potential settlement options now, and is it worth going forward. And you just handle it one day at a time. Because as you go along, you may have a settlement opportunity. Overall, industry-wide, my observation is that the companies that are doing the best are the ones that are able to maintain good relationships 
with the insurance industry. And those that are able to do that are able to command a higher price and they're able to perform their progress with a lot fewer problems. And they uh, have found a way to garner the respect of the insurance industry. And I realize uh, with some adjusters that's not always very easy to do. And sometimes a company could pick uh, a certain carrier or two and say, hey, we just have problems with this particular carrier for whatever reason. The chemistry isn't right. And if a customer calls in and they're insured by carrier X, they say, I'm going to respectfully decline this job and then uh, refer it out to a competitor they don't like very much. Right. <laughs> um, are you, are you, in terms of getting paid, um, are you an advocate of a time and material billing method? Would you be in favor of that? I think that uh, time and materials contracts are causing an unnecessary amount of problems for contractors. It's creating a level of uncertainty. And uh, judges don't like it when consumers don't have an idea of what the price is going in. And I have recently started advising all of my clients to make all of their contracts lump sum contracts and then execute a change order within a day or two to adjust the price as necessary. I realize it's difficult on some emergency service projects to know exactly what the price is going to be, but you don't have to know exactly what the price is going to be. Guess. Put in a number, sign a contract, and at least you don't have a problem of a customer saying, I had no idea it was going to cost this much. Then you have a project manager or somebody with some real expertise in conducting inspections, come in on the second day or the third day, see if the price looks right, present a change order to the customer. If the customer, customer doesn't sign it, then you can walk off the job before you've expended the resources to, uh, to finish up the job and then get into a billing dispute and have to hire a lawyer. In regards to contracts and documents, it's pretty common for an industry that's as close-knit as the disaster repair and remediation industry, that contractors from different states will share documents among one another. These can be contracts, work authorizations, change orders, uh, so on and so forth. And I guess in, with some of these co contracts, you can actually buy them through the mail from, you know, form companies that actually sell them. Can you comment on uh, the quality of documents that you can get by mail order, you know, from a form company and con uh, comment on whether it's a good idea or not a good idea for contractors from different states to share forms? I think it's a really good idea to share them in terms of looking at them and getting new ideas. The problems come up with actually using them. And what a lot of companies are doing is practicing law without a license. They'll piece together different uh, bits and parts from contracts they've seen that they like, which don't necessarily apply to the circumstances of their project and don't necessarily comply with the law in their state. Um, it, it doesn't cost an arm and a leg to get a halfway qualified attorney to look over your contracts and make sure they comply with your local law. And that's the problem with generic forms. You know, people call me up, they say, do you sell forms? And I tried 
sending people forms and they say, well, I want to change this and change that, and it just doesn't work. Contracts that are good are customized to the parties and to the project. Okay. Let's move to risk management. Uh, I think many remediation contractors have an impression that the presence or use of an IEP, indoor environmental professional, on a project relieves the remediator of risk. Can you comment on this? It does not relieve them of risk. It gives them a party who they could potentially point the finger at unless the remediator has some good reason to believe that the IEP has missed something or isn't competent. The problems that I've seen uh, over and over and over are incomplete, inadequate inspections and investigations done by the IEPs. Now, I understand that there are budget constraints and that for some of these people to stay in business, um, they have to do some fairly cursory investigations. But what I've seen in my legal cases is the visual inspections, white glove tests, um, checking for odors are much more helpful than coming in and taking two spore trap samples and trying to uh, contrive some sort of conclusions based on that. Two spore trap samples are useless. It doesn't tell you anything, it's not of any value. And as a matter of fact, in most cases, uh, it can do more harm than good. It can be very misleading. Can you suggest one or more litigation prevention strategies that a mold remediation contractor might use or implement into their business? Um, well, customizing their contracts uh, for their company uh, to start as a basic template, then customizing them for the project uh, going in. Many projects have little idiosyncrasies and quirks with them, which can be inexpensively addressed with a paragraph or two in a contract, an addendum, or a change order or something like that. So many of these lawsuits that come up and get really expensive. If you look back at the beginning, the contractor or the IEP that got sued had some little clue or some inkling that there may have been an issue. They could have foreseen some of these problems. And by getting something into the contract, getting it out in the open, negotiating a way of handling it with the consumer, and then getting some sort of release for it is a great way to go. Another thing that um, companies should do is conduct their own risk management self-audits. And this is best done by a third party, in my opinion. And what you can do is bring in an expert for an afternoon and give them free reign in your file cabinet. Now, I know that's a scary thought <laughs> for a lot of people, but if you, if you bring somebody in and let them go through the files, and I've done this, I'll sit down and I'll randomly pick out six files and I'll go through it and I'll see things that are missing. I don't understand, you know, why mold was remediated in the bathroom, the, you know, samples in the bathroom look clean or there's no photographs showing the problem. There's, there's holes, there's gaps, things that are missing that create legal vulnerabilities later on. And so you sit down with the techs and with the project managers and say, here's what we've learned. The paperwork 
we've got some gaps here, some blanks aren't being filled in. You can fill in every single blank on a form. And if there's no information to put in, put in NA, but to force your people to actually make an entry in every single line because as the years go by, they get more and more lax about this stuff and they just kind of blow through it. And then after you have this little training session, then you have this third party come in three months later, five months later, whatever, and go through the files again. And what I've seen is a real improvement. And you do this over the course of a year. It's a few sessions. It's not that expensive. And we have seen incredible improvement in the quality of the documentation and the decision-making process of the people who are managing the job and a decrease in the number of disputes and legal problems that have come out of them. Ed, is there anything you'd like to add either, you know, that I missed? I've got a bunch of questions, but, you know, I think the last two are really for you. I'd like to know if, if there's something really important that I didn't ask you, something that you'd like to add. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing everybody at the RAA conference in Southern California in late October. Um, I think that um, I want to extend a special thanks to you, Cliff. Your knowledge of science is a great asset to this industry, and um, I've really enjoyed the opportunity to get to know you. I've learned a lot from you, and I hope other people will as well. Uh, vice versa. We've just learned so much from you. How can our listeners contact you, Ed? My phone number is area code 760-773-4002. 760-773-4002. My email is ehc at edcross.com. Stay on the line for a couple minutes, Ed. I know that you've got to go. We're going to do a round table and hang on. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. What an amazing interview. Uh, Ed was just a wonderful guest. I, I hope we have Pete, Joe, Dieter all on the line. Uh, any comments on anything that Ed said? Well, um, this is Dietrich over here. Uh, can you hear me? I'm Absolutely. You're loud and clear. Oh, okay. I, I'm unmuted, I guess. Uh, uh, I, think, I think we ought to have a couple of more shows like this. I hate to say it. But the bottom line is something is getting decided in front of a judge or a jury, whether we like it or not. That, that, that has nothing to do with the subject, with, with the whole idea. But this is where it ends up. And you, know, you can save your money for a whole year and you get all of a sudden hit over the head with one lawsuit and your life savings are gone. I think this is incredibly valuable uh, that people understand of what is lurking around. Now, I have been working with lawyers for the last, as an expert witness, for the last 35 years. And, you know. I can go on this. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, 
I think this is incredibly important. Yeah, you, you, yeah I know all the bad uh, lawyer jokes and all of that, but that this is the bottom line. I mean, we gotta we gotta learn how to do our job right, have yeah you know, foresight and hindsight, and 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 know about the traps that may be around somewhere along the line. I I think that's one way of putting it in layman's uh, 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 language. Hey, uh, Dater, let me jump in here. This is the Please. <laughs> I the one the one thing that Ed said. Um, that uh, that that struck a chord with me, and should certainly strike a chord with any of the restoration remediating contractors who were listening in, is that you look at trying to solve the problems on the front end as opposed to having to have some kind of a reactive approach at the end. I, you know, as Ed is aware, you know, I, I've always had a philosophy. Well, not always, but at least the last ten years that I that I've I've, I've kind of shared at industry events is that I, I look at the relationship that contractors have with its attorneys more from as risk managers than attorneys. When you look at them as an attorney or a lawyer, that means that they're trying to fix something and it's too late. It's after the fact. It's always yep. going to cost a lot of money yep. and, and they're, you're going to have limited results based on something they have no control over. But if you start in the beginning when you want to prepare a contract, when you want to tackle a project or whatever it would be, and you, you consult with the attorney where you're paying them money on the front end as a risk manager and an advisor, then if you do get sued or something happens, not only will he be able to defend you because you're going to be in a good position, but the fact is most of the time it will never get to that point because you'll have good communication, you'll be on the right track, and you'll know how to basically stay out of the potholes and recognize the red flag. So Correct. to me, that's a good message that should be basically sent out to the industry. through. A, you know. Absolutely. And I think the other thing is, you know, um, uh, um, uh, people who have not been, I don't want to call them uh, ignorant of, of justice, or people who have not been working in the system think that somewhere uh, down the line, you know, justice will prevail. And you and I know, once you get into the courtroom, it has absolutely nothing to do with fair play, justice, or any of the other ones. You know, it's going to be a dirty game. You know, one of the yeah, unfortunately, a lot of go ahead, go ahead, Ed. Unfortunately, a lot of cases uh, seem to turn on the likability of different parties, and the yes. fact that juries, after cases, where there be incredible evidence in favor of one party, but they say, "Well, I didn't really think that party was being reasonable," and maybe there's a racial issue, maybe there's a personality issue, maybe. The person with the better case has some sort of uh, emotional outburst during the case. This is all about impressions, and we can do a lot of hard work as lawyers and expert witnesses to put together great evidence. But at the end of the day, if the jury doesn't like you, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yes, yes. You know, one was a case uh, that happened. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ed. Yes, it was a case that happened recently uh, that got thrown out of court after the plaintiffs uh, presented their case. The defendant, uh, making any defense case without putting a single witness on, made a motion with the court for non-suit, which means that even if you accept all of the evidence presented by the plaintiff, they have no case whatsoever, and it should be thrown out, and it shouldn't even go to the jury. The judge granted that because it's so weak. 
Well, the lawyers spoke to the jury afterwards, and they said, well, we were going to decide in favor of the plaintiff. We liked the case. Yeah. You know, one of the things well, I do, I went to scary. I guess Go it's my, my turn as the host. One of the things I don't understand is we, t- we talk about overblown. We have this balloon. The remediators that do the mold remediation think we're doing too much work. Attorneys think we're doing too much work. The specifiers, the IEPs think we're doing too much work. When is this balloon going to burst and we go back to doing what we should have done from the very beginning, which is not as much work as we're doing? Hey, Cliff, do you want to quote Dr. Miner on that from 10 years ago? Absolutely, right. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. You're the host. Quote Dr. Miner. This is how simple it should be. Clean it, dry it, send the bill, and get paid. Or did I forget one? Well, you forgot one, and I would think the most important one from your perspective is clean it, it, apply the antimicrobial, Okay. Uh, dry it, send them the bill. All right. That's why I needed the commercial, Pete. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, what we'd like to do is thank our sponsors, Indoor Environment Connection, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions. You can find them on the web at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. And last but not least, Microband Systems, the microbial management company. You can find them on the web at microbandsystems.com. Links to IAQ Radio are available at iaqtraining.com and unsmoke.com webpages. Don't forget to visit iaqtraining.com for the training you trust. If you're interested in American Indoor Air Quality Council's certified training or customized training programs, please visit the iaqtraining.com website or contact joe.use at iaqtraining.com. This is Cliff Slotnick saying thank you to Technical Director Dr. Dietrich Weil, co-host Joe Hughes, and to cyber jockey Zach Slotnick. But most importantly to you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon, Eastern Standard Time, for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 